Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I do have, I do have another point of order. Yes. This is a cover-up. Mr. Assassi? Favor of the motion? Yes. Uh, Monsieur Drouin? Madame Lapointe? Mr. McKinnon? What a shame. What a shame. Cover-up! Cover-up. No, it's a cover-up. I'm voting against Mr. the cover-up. I'm voting against this cover-up. Uh, Mr. Bolivar. Against the cover-up. And Ms. Ramsey. I'm strongly voting opposed, and I'm shocked at the behavior of my it's colleagues. Despicable. It's disgusting. So, so, that being you said, should be ashamed of your... That being said, the motion is adopted. The meeting is adjourned. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome to another podcast. What you just heard there was the Federal Justice Committee in Ottawa this week discussing the SNC-Lavalin scandal. And, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Liberal MP from Vancouver, right in, in the middle of it. They wanted to hear from her to testify again. The opposition MPs did. The Liberal MPs in that committee didn't see it that way. And then all heck broke loose there. Uh, Rob Shaw is with me. Rob, this uh, SNC-Lavalin story, it, it, it's been brutal for Trudeau because it's one of those drip, drip, drip scandals that every mm-hmm. single day. He just wants the thing to go away. And this week, I thought it looked like Maybe there was a hope that the media coverage on this thing was settling down. Maybe Trudeau was going to get beyond it. But then this blows up again today at the Justice Committee, where the opposition members on that committee, they want to hear from Wilson-Raybould again. They want to recall her and get her to testify some more. The Liberals didn't like it, didn't see it that way at all, and they just shut the committee down. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this committee's heard some explosive testimony, you know, first from Jody Wilson-Raybould and then the rebuttal from Jerry Butts and then the clerk of the Privy Council. And I guess there's a feeling like, especially from Jody Wilson-Raybould, who said publicly, I'm willing to come back. Yeah, we'll come back. I'll testify again. I'll sort some of this out. I'll give you more information. And, you know, for the conservatives and the NDP, that's manna from heaven to continue this controversy on. The Liberals clearly are smarting on this. What, it's the second month that we've been yeah, we're going on, through this? I we're mean, on month two of it now. It's devastating for them in terms of credibility. The longer this goes on, the more people start to go, what the heck is going on within that government? It sounds like, you know, from a distance that they've staunched the bleeding when it comes to caucus and cabinet. There may not be more uh, resignations there. That was really... When your caucus and cabinet starts revolting like that, I mean, that's the end of a party's leadership. And yet Justin Trudeau has managed to keep everyone in line outside of two resignations. And he looks like he's in a somewhat oddly stable position on month two of this, but it, it doesn't show any signs of going away. One of the things that I found surprising is the way that Trudeau and the liberals have I think mismanaged this story from the very beginning. It's been very the the communications on it and the positioning on it has been very curious to me. And uh, I think we saw it again there today in the clip that you just heard, 
where you hear these conservative MPs and these other opposition MPs crying, cover up. This is a cover up that's going on because you had the liberal majority. That's the, th- the key thing to remember on that committee in Ottawa. It's a liberal majority of MPs on there. And they vote to, they use their majority to shut the, the committee meeting down uh, this week. And again, it just looks, it looks terrible. And when the committee meeting was over, all the opposition MPs w- marched straight out in the hallway to start doing scrums mm-hmm. because they're loving this. The liberal MPs on the committee went out the back door. They didn't want <laughs> took, to do any took scrums. Took the fire escape and took off. Down yeah, the alley. they're going out the back. So what does that tell you? You know, I mean, they're they're embarrassed, I think, and, and hurting on the thing. Another development we saw in the story this week, Robin, I wrote about it in the province newspaper this week, was um, the, the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is an international agency that tries to foster fair business practices and cooperation to promote equality and development around the world. Putting this, this Trudeau government on notice in Ottawa about not taking seriously enough allegations of international bribery. Mm. And that's what this case all comes down to, because don't forget, this company, SNC-Lavalin, is accused of bribing the former regime of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, one of the most brutal dictators in the world, uh, to get billions of dollars worth of public tendered, publicly tendered contracts over there to build, like, um, pipelines and sewers and schools and jails. and So it's a really nasty story. I mean, there was a story out of the La Presse in Montreal that said the company actually spent thousands of dollars hiring prostitutes for Gaddafi's son, and that ha- allegedly happened in Canada. So it's an ugly kind of scandal, and now Canada has got kind of a black eye on it on the world stage this week. So it's one that I continue to, to, to take keen interest in. And one of the things I'm, I'm interested in, and you see what you think about this, Rob, we got an election coming up in the fall, mm-hmm. federal election. Trudeau did really well in British Columbia last time, four years ago. We had that Trudeau mania roll through British Columbia, and he picked up a ton of seats. He needs a lot of those seats to hang on to power, I think. And I don't think that this scandal is playing all that well for him in B.C. No, I mean, Jody Wilson-Raybould has you know both the popularity of being a British Columbia MP, but also, you know, connections to the the First Nations community. Uh, she's got a lot of support from uh, BC First Nations chiefs. And there's a feeling that, you know, Justin Trudeau has lost significant ground in British Columbia since the last election. I mean, his promises on environmental, uh, you know, sustainability, uh, you know, pipelines, First Nations reconciliation, he hasn't really delivered on those things. And I could see him losing ground in British Columbia in the next election. The question, though, is can he gain more ground in places like Quebec at the expense of the right. NDP and then therefore kind of end up, you know, either in a wash or ahead of the game in some ways by picking up some ridings over here and then losing some ridings in B.C. And where does that put him overall? But it certainly he's I mean, I, is there anything uh, that the liberals have done that is going to benefit them electorally in British Columbia? Do you think, Smitty? I mean, I, I, I mean, some maybe some parts with the pipeline issue bleed over to certain BC communities, but I don't, I, I don't know. Well, that. we have a federal budget coming up here shortly, and this is going to be a pre-election budget, and you can bet it'll be chock full of goodies here with an election coming up in the fall. So maybe British Columbia might be in line for some good news in this budget coming up. 
And your point about Quebec is interesting because the company is based in Montreal, of course, and a lot of a lot of the workers are based there. And Trudeau keeps playing this card about this is about protecting jobs and workers, predominantly, especially in Quebec. So maybe he picks up some, manages to hang on to what he's got there. And the other thing is, if you you got to look at how he stacks up against his opponents, right? I mean, right. Uh, Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader, leading in the polls right now with a pretty good lead, but not exactly the most charismatic politician ever come along in Canada. Maybe Trudeau outshines him on a, in a campaign trail or in a debate format. And, of course, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP, and all those issues you just mentioned, like pipeline, uh, First Nations reconciliation, these are this should be kind of these are sort of red meat issues for the NDP, and they should be cleaning Trudeau's clock on issues like that. And you think they'd be ticking up and stealing support from the Liberals, but instead the NDP are doing lousy in the mm-hmm. polls, you know. And so there's a big chore for Singh to kind of try and turn that around. The best hope I think for Singh is is he ends up holding the balance of power in a minority government situation, which is not impossible in the fall. But I guess if you add it all up. Uh, this whole SNC-Lavalin thing has been brutal, I think, for Trudeau, but I don't think you can count the guy out where do you at think, all. Where do you think we are in the course of the scandal for SNC-Lavalin? Well, I thought it was dying down until today with this drama at the uh, at the Justice Committee, which kind of you know, saw it flare up a little bit. But, you know, you're right about the – I don't think we're going to see any more cabinet resignations because they've all publicly endorsed Trudeau now. We've seen a little bit of rumbling on the backbench from backbench MPs, but maybe that's going to die down a little bit now. So maybe Trudeau is hoping he's over the worst of it. But this kind of scandal has got a kind of a sticky quality to it that just keeps sticking around and hanging around. So, you know, he, he hopes it's over, but maybe it's not. I mean, even a damaged Justin Trudeau is still a, an effective weapon for the you know, the liberals in an election Potentially, campaign. yeah. And who else are they going to conscript at this late moment to take his spot? It, it, that doesn't seem like a likely scenario. I mean, there may be unhappy liberal backbenchers, but a coup to replace Trudeau at this point just seems like electoral suicide. Liberals are at like 33, 35% in the polls or something. So that's, you know, he's hanging on to his base there pretty well. And we saw how well he did in the campaign last time. So I don't count Trudeau out at all. And I think he could he could win again, um, maybe a minority government, which would be very dramatic. We're mm-hmm. certainly used to minority governments here. Yeah, you wrote a book about it in <laughs> British did. Columbia. Good yeah, one. yeah, a very good book. Um, the, there'll be a lot of focus in the federal election on battlegrounds like Surrey, and we've been talking provincially about Surrey politics and all sorts of shapes and forms and sizes. But once again. The issue of Surrey School Portables has come up, Smitty, and you and I remember from the election campaign in 2017 how big of an issue that was for the New Democrats. I think the summary of their promises was to eliminate school portables within, what, a four-year cycle, cut them in half within a couple years. That promise has since been watered down considerably because it turns out they can't achieve those goals. (laughs) And in short, it's not achievable. And so we continue to have this kind of um, update from the school district in Surrey that says, oh, by the way, every few months we need more portables. And this has come up again where now the Surrey School Board is saying they need they want $10 million from the provincial government to help uh, put in 20 to 30 new portables for the school year coming up. So there has been no reduction in portables in Surrey since the NDP took power. They will say... And they have said that uh, that's because the Liberals left them so far behind the eight ball, you know, so few projects in the queue in the hopper ready to go for new schools 
that they've been struggling to build from scratch and, and find ways to get students into classrooms. And in the meantime, portables are going to rise. I don't know if, if that's true or not. There's a lot of politics on both sides. But in the meantime, this is year two now of Surrey having to increase portables and the NDP having to say, well, okay, I mean, we're working on it. We're working on it. What do you, what do you make of that promise and the dynamic and how it's kind of rolling out over time? Well, you know what? In this job, I sometimes feel like Bill Murray in that movie Groundhog Day because things seem to just repeat on a uh, uh, re- repeating loop. Uh, and it's just the names and the political parties sometimes switched places. And for the NDP and Education Minister Rob Fleming, this used to be a fantastic issue for him in opposition. I mean, he went after the Liberals tooth and nail on portables in Surrey, and it was just an awesome uh, talking point for him because there were so many swing ridings in Surrey that the NDP were desperate to win. And with a growing, uh, grow, a rapidly growing city in Surrey and a big population and overcrowded schools, just fantastic for the NDP. And yet here we are now, the, the names have changed, the parties have reversed, and it's just the same thing again. You know, we, they need, uh, they've got too many portables in Surrey. <laughs> so it's again another example where where Fleming in particular has been on the hot seat lately. Because if you take a look at the fight over the potential for school closures in the city of Surrey, again, it's another one where there's a role reversal, where he used to attack the liberals for possibly shutting down schools in the city of Vancouver. Now the Vancouver School Board looking at the exact issue again and suggesting maybe, they haven't decided to do this yet, but possibly consolidating and closing some schools because of falling enrollment on that side of the municipal border. So uh, Fleming is a guy really in the crosshairs right now and taking a lot of heat. He's performing, standing up, I guess, okay on it, but it could get tougher for him, especially with teacher negotiations coming up for a new contract. He's one of the NDP's more gifted question period performers. So when you watch him take heat in the House on... This issue, Surrey School Portables, came up last week. He can stand up and bat it around like the best of them. The problem is he's not actually saying anything. He's just straight 100% pure political fire. And the solutions to these problems are complex. And I'm not entirely sure his uh, progress being made on these is is an attribute to the NDP in any way whatsoever. And I I mean... (sighs) It looks at this point like the idea of eliminating portables in in Surrey is just not possible. Certainly not possible in the life cycle of an NDP government, even if we're looking at two terms on this thing. I mean, there's not enough schools in the queue right now or on the planning block to eliminate school portables. You talk to Surrey school trustees and they will tell you, in fact, I talked to one uh, for a story this week. In my days, I'll never see the end of portables in Surrey. So in Rob Fleming's days or unlikely to see the end of portables in Surrey. And the question now is how long can the NDP continue to blame the Liberals for this? Uh, In some files, we talk every week, Smitty, about how much grace period there still is for the New Democrats on issues like ICBC and BC Hydro. They can continue to blame the Liberals for mismanagement. But on the education file, Rob Fleming has a much shorter leash, and I think he's run to the end of it and beyond on Surrey schools, where parents are like, well, what, what did we vote New Democrat for here 
um, I thought this was a promise, and Fleming is continuing to blame the liberals, and that maybe doesn't cut it at the start of school year two. He's finding out how difficult it is in government and how easy it is to kind of throw pot shots at the, at the liberals when he was in opposition and saying, just get this stuff done. And then you get into government and you discover, especially when you're, the, the government appears to be determined to keep the budget balanced and not, and not blow the books on uh, going into deep deficit spending, that it's difficult to get these projects uh, completed rapidly. And he certainly made it sound easy, though, when mm-hmm. he was in opposition. I mean, I remember many times interviewing him and saying, you know, he was, he'd be breathing fire about all these oppositions and, uh, or all these uh, uh, portables in Surrey. And then I'd you'd ask him, well, what are you going to do? How would you get it done? He goes, well, you just got to fast track these projects. You know, we need to cut the bureaucracy and the red tape. We need to uh, tender these projects quickly. And we need to get going. And, you know, it's not rocket science to get these things built. Same thing on uh, seismic upgrades on schools. There were so many schools, especially in the city of Vancouver, that are old and in danger of falling down in an earthquake. And the liberals were way behind and, and not delivering on seismically upgrading these schools to make them safe. And again, Fleming's argument on it was, you just got to fast track it. You just got to get in there and uh, show determined leadership and, and political will to get these things done. Well, then you get into into government, and what do we see? We still see a ton of portables in Surrey. We still see the Vancouver School Board saying, maybe we got to shut some of these schools down because they're in danger of falling down in mm-hmm. an earthquake. So it's easier said than done, yeah. uh, for sure. Well, it's, and, and I'm not entirely sure what Fleming is doing on this, he's, other than just talking about it. Um, another swing and a miss by the education minister, and I wrote about it this week, is the issue of feminine hygiene products in schools. And this has come up. There's a a movement, a kind of grassroots movement that is going through the school districts right now saying, look, you know, for girls, uh, there's a stigma and embarrassment around having to go to offices or counseling rooms to get, you know, some type of um, feminine hygiene product, a, a tampon or a pad when they're having their period. And this is something that should be free in a school washroom, in a dispensary. You just get it and let's get it done. And there's this widespread agreement. School districts all over the place now are starting to pick this up. New Westminster became the first to do it uh, and provide it. They're going to eat the cost of that because it's going to be somewhere in the range of $7,000 a year plus $10,000 to put the machines in. Surrey is debating this now. Um, There are some other school districts that are bringing it up. There's staff reports from the Vancouver School District. Burnaby has a consultation out. And they're all looking to Rob Fleming and saying, look, like... This is a basic kind of human rights issue, especially for young girls. There's a stigma issue. There are, I think there's a statistic that um, one in seven girls has had to miss school because of embarrassment around this. Why can't we just put them in the school bathrooms? What's the deal here? And Fleming is kind of humming and hawing and, well, yeah. And he got asked last week in the International uh, Women's uh, Rights Day. He sort of kind of hummed and hawed his way around it. Here's an easy one. For the education minister. This is an easy one. Do it. Just do it. Just find the money. And instead, he's dodging around and saying, well, why don't you go look for existing grant programs and we're going to study it. We're going to do that. Well, okay. I mean, if you were a minister on top of all your files and you had no curveballs coming at your face all over the place, no political heat on you, then sure, study it to death. But this guy has fire building all around him on teacher negotiations, Surrey schools, Vancouver school closures. Look for the the easy victories here. Find the money to do it. 
I don't understand what the education minister is doing on this one, and I have a hard time understanding what he's doing on the other ones either. I think it's a great point, and I thought you wrote an excellent uh, story on this uh, in the paper this week, which I encourage listeners to check out. Speaking of those um, negotiations, what's going on with that, with the, with the union? Well, it looks like they're going to start at some point. I mean, we yeah. don't hear a lot. I think we're at the point now where both sides realize that, you know, as these negotiations are going to commence, you know, like let's – Let's get everyone to the table first before you start throwing haymakers at each other. The TF are behind a number of the issues we've just been talking about. They're certainly supportive of the feminine hygiene product issue. They've been outspoken on school closures in Vancouver. They've talked about the problems of portables in Surrey. I mean, they are voices behind some of the criticisms of this of this government and other governments. They spoke out on the new Democrat budgets and said, we need more education funding. This is great that they've that they've provided more. They've done a lot more than the Liberals did on the Supreme Court loss for class size and composition, but there's still more that needs to be done. There's a lot of low-level kind of, I think, political pushback from the TF on this NDP government, but they're they're making sure to stop short of embarrassing the education minister and embarrassing the premier. They're exerting a lot of pressure on funding on the things like, uh, uh, you know, having to have substitute uh, teachers into classrooms and then the sub lists are empty and then you've got administrators and you've got cat classes that are combined together and special education classes that uh, aren't operating as they should you know under a liberal government the tf would be just swinging for the fences on that and they, they are giving i think the ndp a little bit of grace as they enter these contract negotiations hoping that uh, Rob Fleming, who doesn't really have anything to do with this, this is going to be Carol James, the finance minister's call, will offer up some more money if they are respectful of their criticism and don't try to embarrass the government going into these talks. Government's in a tough spot here because they will turn around and say, well, we've increased the budget for school funding in, in, the, in the recent provincial budget, put another $182 million in this year, $550 million. Uh, extra over three years for the education ministry, but you've got a teachers' union that's been one of the toughest unions we've seen in this province over for a long time, uh, feeling like it's payback time now. You know, like the Liberals were in power for 16 years. They fought them all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and won. Now you've got what is supposedly a friendly government in power that is saying, like, look, how about we want a significant raise? If you If you speak to Glenn Hansman, the president of the teachers' union, he'll say, if you ask him how much is a new teacher, a newly hired teacher, make in BC, he says it's about forty-eight thousand dollars, which he says is about fifteen thousand dollars less than what teachers make in other Western provinces. So they want a significant raise, but the government's got this two percent governing or bargaining mandate because every other public sector union so far has settled for the same raise, two percent a year over three for three years, so two, two, and two. And they've all got these Me Too clauses in them that we've talked about before, that if any other union gets a bigger raise, then this this clause kicks into the other contracts as well. We get the bigger raise, too. So there's no way the government can budge on the 2% raise, it would appear. So that's a tough spot for them. But what I think will happen is there are other ways to sweeten the pot in, in contract bargaining. Like they can they can change the salary grids, as they're known, so... A newly hired teacher would see their salary increase faster from seniority than mm-hmm. it was under previous contracts. Um, there are uh, bonuses they can give for teachers for for working in remote communities around the province, that kind of thing. So there are ways 
that the government can put give more money to teachers and still not break their two percent bargaining mandate. But this is a this is a, a very tough and determined union, as we've seen over the years, right? So we talked earlier about where is this going to go? Is this going to end up in another strike? You don't think so, right? You think no, maybe it's going to it could end up in a work to rule or something? Yeah, I, I can't see. I don't think the teachers want that because I think that. You know, they they recognize that the public appetite for another strike is is pretty low. That people people sympathize with what teachers have gone through under the liberals. They feel like with the court decision increased funding in the school system, that this government has increased funding as well. That there's probably not a massive reason to go on strike. The system isn't as under attack as it was. You know, the fundamentals of it were under attack by the liberals, and yeah. I think the public recognized that, and and the TF probably realized that that sentiment isn't there. But they can make life difficult for the NDP. They're a powerful union. Their members are NDP supporters. They're, uh, in most cases, and not all teachers are NDP supporters, but they're they're an NDP-supporting union, yeah. and they help the party. And the party is constantly on election readiness alert. You never know when there might be an election in BC's minority government situation. They need unions like the TF on their side. So I, I think that we will have a period of a few months here where we're dead quiet and they're actually trying to bargain. And then as we approach the end of the school year, that's the last chance for the TF to sort of influence, um, you know, the the pressure valve and do things like not issue report cards or not, um, you know, something that happens before we enter the kind of summer period of, of schools, that they have a little bit of leverage and then maybe it picks up again in the fall. And so... But I just can't see. I, I don't know. Can you see any scenario where they go, the teachers go on strike? It, it seems like such yes. A, oh, you can. <laughs> yeah, because the reason I say that is I've seen this union go on strike against every stripe of government. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter if it's social credit, liberal, NDP. This is a union that is uh, willing to hit the picket line, and you know, I, I, there, there's a lot of pent up expectations in this union and, and demands for. A, a lucrative contract, at least relatively speaking, over since compared to when the Liberals were in power. So I don't rule out a strike at all. So mm. well, yeah, I mean, they did have a. There were periods in the 1990s under the NDP government where the TF did, you know, had yeah. to be legislated back to work. That's there right. were certain sectors of, the, and and that's not. It is not unheard of for the NDP and the and the TF to go at each other the same way that the Liberals and the, and the TF did, but so early in. The government's mandate and with so much money put into the system in the last couple of years, I would be surprised. But B.C. politics is full of we'll surprises. See. We'll see. That, that leads to a larger question, though, Smitty, of the future of this government. And our colleague Vaughn Palmer wrote a, a column in The Sun uh, in the last week where he talked about, you know, maybe maybe a road ahead another year, perhaps, of this Horgan government because – you know, in a very quiet way, we did have the confidence votes in the last couple of weeks here at the legislature, the throne speech, which turned into a bit of a bungled mess because there was a moment where the New Democrats were supposed to speak on the throne speech and they didn't have anyone there. And so the liberals let the silence slide out and the throne speech went to a vote. And of course, everyone then scrambled to get in the chamber and the NDP and Greens won the vote. Yeah. But it ended debate on the throne speech, which was an embarrassment for the New Democrats. They like the throne speech is kind of like the filler in a legislature session. Whenever there's a dull moment, you throw it out to MLAs and they, you know, read about their community and talk about the throne speech. That's done now, but it passed. Right. And the other confidence vote that could bring down a government is the budget. And we've already seen the budget now get into 
the committee estimate stage, which is passing through the confidence vote, and it passed. And so, theoretically, those two confidence votes are done. The NDP survived. There may not be another one, certainly not on the books for this year, unless the NDP government wanted one. Does that mean they're safe for the year, Smitty? And, and does that mean, by extension, that they're we're looking at a full four-year term by this this government? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think they've survived uh, very handily here. And uh, crucially, they won the Nanaimo by-election there. Um, if they had lost that by-election, it would have been a, a game-changer and a totally different story. But they won that by-election. They retained that NDP seat. They keep their two-seat majority in partnership with the Greens in this minority parliament. And they hand and they win those two confidence votes you just mentioned. So they're over the uh, they're over the the points of jeopardy where they could could fall, and presumably they can last for a long time. And I think that Horgan so far this year is having a pretty good 2019. Uh, they won that by election, which was the, which was a must win. They've survived these confidence votes. Uh, the budget is balanced. The economy is going well. Uh, the Liberals are kind of stumbling, a bit. like Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader here the last few weeks with these comments about the wacky renters yeah, and saying that, oh, renting is fun and wacky, complete and total gaffe, that he, he also bungled the apology, taking him several, op- several times he, that he had to walk it back over a period of days. And then he came out and criticized the interest-free student loans that the government brought in sort of a... a sort of a marquee piece in the in the recent budget <laughs> again he was kind of stumbling to apologize so i think the ndp are, are thinking to themselves this is this is going pretty well here so far in this year um some of the recent opinion polls are close the liberals would have uh, you know ahead in some of them but i don't know i, th- I think horgan's pretty happy and, and the new democrats are pretty pleased where they are right now but then let's take a second flipping around so right. the idea that the ndp are you know staying in power and that's good for them it, it, you know is one way to look at it the other way is um the liberals don't want an election right now i don't think i think they're disorganized they don't have the money they don't have the candidates and they don't have the platform most of all they don't we have no idea what the liberals stand for on some of the key issues we know they stand against the ndp policies but we don't know their solutions for childcare, housing affordability transit so in some ways you know while we talk about the ndp surviving and continuing to govern, uh, an election right now would benefit the NDP way more than the Liberals. So that's that whole idea that they could get a majority out of, an, out of a snap election right now, possibly. And I, you know, I, I kind of wonder that they've got this clear runway now. And for a lot of new Democrats, that's great. But for some in the war room, I think they're probably thinking, ah, darn it, you know, like if there was only some legitimate wedge public issue that would fire people up right now that we could engineer an, an election because you because it, it almost they almost feel like they could win a majority government yeah, they could right shake now. off the greens yeah not have to have this this confidence and supply agreement with the greens and just govern like a true ndp majority for four years and a, and a full mandate um I, but i don't i have not seen that issue and when you talk to horgan about is there anything that would that you think would cause an election he sort of says no oh, no not not really and you know we don't need one but is there some iceberg out there? Just we only see the tip of it that we're we're heading towards that the NDP could capitalize on and, and lead us to an election and maybe get that majority that they want. Or are we going to see this thing go out for four, 
full years and then we just have a regularly scheduled election and everyone kind of uh, goes from there. I would say we're probably looking at a longer scenario than a, a short a short period a snap election in the in the short term. Um, but you never know. I mean, things politics are unpredictable and things can happen at a moment's notice that you don't predict. Look look at the SNC-Lavalin scandal that we just started the podcast talking about today. I mean, it was just over a month ago, Trudeau was ticking along nicely in the federal polls and looked like, you know, he's got a good news budget coming up. He's got an election coming up in the fall. Things are looking pretty good. And then all of a sudden, this SNC-Lavalin thing comes out of nowhere and plunges the government into a crisis. So things can change and happen quickly. But I think Horgan's game plan is one of the things that's impressed me about Horgan is uh, I think he's kind of over-delivered and exceeded expectations in a lot of way. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as, the, as the leader of the party in the, in the election where he performed really well in the election, and then his performance as premier as well, I think has uh, exceeded expectations in a lot of people's minds. Cert- certainly I think he's done better than I, than I thought he would do. And I think he's shown to be pretty clever and astute politician and I, I think he's a student of uh, political history as well, and he understands the kind of the risk-benefit analysis of every move. And if you think back to, um, I remember covering an election in Ontario once. Uh, the premier was David Peterson, who was the liberal premier of Ontario, and he called a snap election out of the blue. He's way ahead in the polls, mm-hmm. and, he's, and, he, and he just said he engineered a snap election. Let's go early. And he lost. I mean, Bob Ray and the NDP won, won that election. He won big. And it was just a shocking outcome because he went into it so full of confidence and way, way ahead in the polls. But the public, I think, saw an opportunistic guy who was calling a snap early election because he was, he was in a good spot in the polls and his opponents looked weak. And they punished him for it. So, I mean, I don't know if that kind of... That precedent specifically might be in the back of Horgan's mind, but I think generally speaking, Horgan is the type of guy who's who is a, is more clever than we think in 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 planning and, and analyzing every move that he makes. And I think right now a snap election would be a little risky for him. And I think the long term plan is is just to keep governing at least for the remainder of this year. Yeah, and uh, there might be a bit of election fatigue there as well in the electorate yeah. that you can punish a government for if it looks like they're. Wasting your time having to go to the polls again, especially with a federal election on the horizon for this fall. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's a bit of a guessing game, but I would just keep one ear and one eye on issues as they develop this year for anything that could be that if you trigger if, you, if that trigger yeah, yeah if you could blow it up into the public consciousness if you yeah. could toss a bunch of money at it or make it some sort of defining issue could you lead to a budget in february that includes money for this particular thing that the greens can't support and and send us into some type of spring you know 2020 Next election it's, yeah. it's entirely possible yep. but it just kind of you know kind of monitor it uh, as you're watching politics this year everyone and just sort of keep your eye on that and uh, we will do that as well every week here on the podcast make sure you're subscribing uh, via Apple uh, Podcasts or your local podcast uh, service of choice read the Vancouver Sun and the province follow us on the Twitters uh, (laughs) and the Facebooks and the such and uh, we'll be back next week uh, with uh, more BC politics for you talk to you next time